Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. And I have with me Jonah Weiner. He's a contributing writer at New York Times Magazine. He also has a really cool newsletter uh, called Blackbird Spy Plane that you can check out at blackbirdspyplane.com. And he's it's a lot of fashion stuff, but he's interviewed people like Phoebe Bridgers. It's, it's a lot of fun. And Jonah is joining me because he wrote a definitive cover story on a couple of robots who have left our world. Daft Punk have broken up in a very Daft Punk way. They're gone. We miss them already. I feel like, I honestly feel like this is like one of the episodes we do after someone dies, but no human being to our knowledge has died, but uh, the robots are, are gone. But in 2013, Jonah wrote this piece on Daft Punk, and they haven't done much since, actually, which makes it kind of all the more weird and hilarious that they broke up so publicly. But first of all, Jonah, welcome. And second of all, what do you make of the breakup, the announcement of the breakup, the timing? Like, what are we to make of this? Yeah, so, yeah, I guess what you were saying is we can front load uh, any conspiracy theorizing. You don't have a a later conspiracy theory segment, you know, planned. So we can hop right in. I don't know, like, I haven't gone deep into the, like, kind of like Reddit, you know, rabbit hole on this. But are people, it's just funny, with with a group that is this kind of um, arch and this theatrical, you do sort of wonder, is there a stunt at play in kind of announcing it the way they did, which is, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but they sort of, they posted a clip from the end of Electroma, which is this movie that they made back in 2006. Spoiler alert, the movie ends with uh, their two kind of robot characters that they're playing exploding in the middle of the desert. Uh, And so there's an excerpt of that scene. And then I guess that they have the years that the band was active, concluding with 2021. Like you do sort of wonder during a pandemic when they haven't put out music in so long, what is really the point of officially breaking up other than to maybe signal that somehow you're not breaking up. And I don't know, maybe I'm being hopeful and wishful thinking because I don't want them to be broken up. And also just with the history of their playfulness and their kind of um, theatricality, wondering kind of like, is this, I don't know, is this move one in some kind of bigger game? I don't know. Well, I wonder whether there's perhaps a solo project or a solo projects coming. Um, mm. that, that would be like perhaps something is, but well, yeah, it raises a lot of questions, but Let's take a step back. Who were Daft Punk, Jonah? Who were Daft Punk? All right. So these two uh, French friends, friends since, boy, it's it's in my story. Either elementary school, at least like middle school, high school, you know, very young friends. They they hit it off. And you um, have booked a half French journalist who will now mangle the pronunciation of their names as little as possible to not offend my French mom if she listens. Daniel Banjolte. Uh, and Guy-Manuel Omem-Christo. I think I did that pretty well. I'd, I'm not sure if I rolled my R quite perfectly. But uh, two French friends, they uh, live in Paris. They're kind of both music fans when they're kids and like hip music fans. Um, I remember talking to someone from my story who worked at a record store that they would crate dig at. And, you know, they're kind of buying Beach Boys vinyl, vinyl and Augustus Pablo vinyl when they're teenagers. So sort of far ranging musical tastes. They form a short lived uh, rock band. Uh, along with Laurent Bronkowitz, who goes on to prominence in Phoenix. 
and that band is called Darlin. They put out music that is not particularly well-reviewed. In fact, it is so poorly reviewed that one of the reviews of Darlin's release uses the phrase Daft Punk to describe it, and they say, well, that's a pretty fun name for us to adopt for this electronic music project that we're about to launch, and they start making dance music. And it it is interesting. I mean, I I do find that some of my favorite music altogether tends to be people from the rock world going into dance, you know, and then the LCD sound system. It just, it, it's just a thing that worked. Disclosure is another example. Those guys were, at least their first album, then nothing, nothing by them ever connected with me again. But I love that first album. And they, and they were, you know, they were like two kids who grew up in prog rock and, and brought that to. So there's something, and I don't think just for me, I think there is something right about that thing of people who grew up on rock, then get entranced by electronic dance music and then bring some ineffable thing that from that other world into this world and then it it just makes like really great music and that's uh, one of the things that's great about Daft Punk right yeah well and and um I think that probably right uh we could spend some time thinking about what makes up that ineffable you know quality but what you just reminded me of was that it was so interesting in the 90s the late 90s when they first come to prominence it's as part of this kind of you know, uh, post alt rock slash just kind of alt rock moment. And I use alt rock almost in the sort of the radio designation kind of sense of the phrase, which is to say, you know, I grew up in New York and you would turn it on 92.3, you know, the K-Rocks, you know, 93 K-Rock, and you'd hear, you know, a Stone Temple Pilots song and then a Bush song and then the Chemical Brothers and then Stone Temple Pilots and then Daft Punk and then Fatboy Slim, you know, kind of that was this moment. And I'm not 100% sure off you know, the dome about those other groups, but there is something, I mean, certainly Chemical Brothers influenced by the Beatles very famously with Tomorrow Never Knows, but like there is this sense that um, something in that DNA uh, doesn't just make the music interesting, but allowed them to kind of occupy playlists in a way that kind of made sense. It didn't seem jarring. And it's so interesting that Daft Punk kind of went on to become sort of, or, or to attain the stature they did because they could have kind of just you know, gone away with the end of that sort of fat boy slim kind of 90s moment, which could be, I mean, it's a lot of great music that came out of it, but like put pejoratively, you could say that was a fad that passed and Daft Punk outlived it. Um, but yeah, I was thinking about how, how interesting it was this moment when a group like Daft Punk would have their songs played on rock radio with, I guess, some guitars in the tracks, but it wasn't really about guitars. Yeah, it was something attitudinal or who knows. Again, hard to pin down, but one of the things... I was thinking about them is as I was doing kind of obituaries for various rock people who who passed away last year and just generally doing some reading of things from a vanished era. One of the things I, I took away was just this thinking again about how these store all the drama in the old stories of like old rock and soul guys and everything can't be replicated because a lot of the drama is. I've got all this talent. How am I going to get the world to hear it? And that's like no longer an issue at all. That whole thing, which makes up the first half of every you know uh, bio of a, a musical legend, is now like I put it up on TikTok and I was famous in five seconds. Uh, so so that whole that whole thing is gone. And, and I, I bring that up because even thinking about even Daft Punk for slightly different reasons, it, it already feels like their story is an artifact of the past in some ways that they were maybe one of the last musical groups to maintain the level of mystique and distance that they did. I, I don't know if, if you agree. Oh yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. I've always thought about that question in the context of, you know, the intervention that they made into dance music and how dance music 
is performed or experienced live, which is to say that kind of put kind of in broad strokes, if there was a moment when you would go to a rave and be facing other people that had done similar drugs to you and that were dancing alongside you, that was kind of the visual experience of listening to that music was, let's say, a crowded floor where you're just looking at other people or looking at your feet or, you know, looking across the room um, or looking, you know, maybe whatever, you know, the light, the lighting effects were in that warehouse. And the DJ was off kind of the sort of, you know, omnipresent, but also sort of invisible figure that maybe you'd kind of glimpse up at in a booth. And what they did was interesting because on the one hand, they made themselves the you know literal center of attention, especially on the Alive tour coming off Coachella, where they and, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into this in some detail. But you know they build this pyramid, so like really orienting everyone's attention, you know, at this pyramid glowing on a stage, um, and yet at the same time deflecting attention by yeah um and deflecting attention and as you put it kind of creating and sustaining this mystique by wearing masks and covering their faces and so there's this kind of interesting kind of move there where on the one hand they're saying all right you know we're not going to be the sort of absent dj who's just pressing buttons we're going to figure out a way to make these two guys pressing buttons look interesting and yet at the same time in a way that remains kind of just the right amount of opaque now i i don't think i had realized until i was preparing for this show that the sort of the the shtick, the mythology in how they transitioned into being robots because they couldn't hide the fact that people knew their names and they had been, you know, there, there was footage of that band and they knew the guys from Phoenix, like they were obviously human beings. It wasn't like no one knew, actually knew who they were. It wasn't that kind of love. They wore masks, but actually everyone knew who they were, or at least anyone who cared. But in the official mythology, they were obsessed apparently with the, the, uh, the Millennium Bug, which many people may have forgotten that what the Millennium Bug was, but the idea that all computers would go haywire at the moment that uh, 1999 became 2000, and thus you know the world would have gone into chaos. It was a big fear at the time. It's it's literally ancient history now. But that Plane, was, planes were going to fall out of the sky yes, because yeah. yeah, they were going to think it was 1900. Of course, I love to think that really what all that sort of uh, millennial um, fear was all based in, uh, we just had the timing wrong because everything did go to hell. But that, that's, a, that's another story. But anyway, they were obsessed with that fear. And the official story they put out is that when at the turn of the century, something went wrong with, you know, in the, in the studio. And at that moment, they went from human to machine. And that's the origin of, of the Daft Punk robots. Uh, yeah, and it's I funny because because bef- before that, like they actually showed up at photo shoots. There's like a really early one, which I think is actually not from the band. I think it's from early Daft Punk, and this was just like the photo that if you Googled them for the longest time would kind of pop up. Like they did press maybe like one shoot with their faces out uh, for a variety of reasons. Decided they didn't like that, and then they actually like they auditioned other face coverings before the robot masks. And it's in the story. I'd have to double check, but like I think they went to like a Halloween type store and just bought like monster masks for one. The really fun detail is that the original version of the robot masks had hair which is like a horrifying thing to think about and the way that they tell it is on the way to like the first shoot where they were gonna debut the robot looks they're like hold up and they kind of like rip the hair off and they're like yeah this looks a little better um (laughs) without like a flowing mane coming off this like chrome robot helmet but it did become maybe you can talk a little bit about just sort of i hate to use the word iconic but Actually, I think it might be the rare use of, of where the word iconic is, is works on every rhetorical level. Them in, in the robot masks did become this literal icon of sort of the first 20 years of the 20th, 21st century. 
Yeah, it's true. And I mean, you know, in part there, you know, you, you know, you have to talk about Kraftwerk, both in terms of Kraftwerk's uh, influence musically on electronic music period, but also this notion of the kind of the man conjoined with the machine, um, which is, you know, whatever, that's a kind of poetic conundrum of modernity period uh, and certainly one when you make music with synthesizers that you're thinking about so you know that's a precedent you know they talk about uh you know a forebear like kiss um who really kind of ramped up the stagecraft but it's true i mean i think that if you're going to talk about the kind of like how iconic those masks became you can actually get at something that's really important in kind of making sense of Daft Punk and kind of what they pulled off. And it ties into, you know, what you, the story that you retold where like there's an accident in the studio and like lightning struck or whatever it was, there's an electrical storm and they fused with their, you know, synthesizers and became robots. Like they are like, let's again, I'm half French. I'm allowed to say this 99% of French people, like there is a large amount of cheesiness to them, uh, which is to say like, or I should be more precise about that. French pop culture is by and large, historically, very cheesy. Mm. Um, French fashion isn't. French new wave filmmaking isn't. That stuff is cool. But kind of like French music, there's just like a lot of cheese. You know, there's like, you know, very like famously French people uh, think that Jerry Lewis is like the funniest person on, you know, the face of the earth. That would be the kind of like biggest stereotypical illustration of this. But there's a certain sense of like, the ability, ironically, from like, you know, the country that produced Serge Gansberg and Jean-Luc Godard, like an inability to really detect the line between cool and cheesy. And what Daft Punk do with that story about the robots and what they do uh, in terms of the kind of like uh, uh, musical influences that they'll weave together, literally in the terms of in terms of what they'll sample and the kind of vocalists that they'll put on a track and just the way that those vocals will sound is they just totally obliterate the line between cool and cheesy. And they kind of rehabilitate, you know, very day class A kind of, you know, disco sounds, but put them next to, you know, very cool underground techno and house kind of references uh, and really scramble that line. But I think that there is and this runs throughout their entire discography. It's all over. I mean, it's kind of like it's on steroids on random access memories. But just this like this cheese factor is so abundant with them. And yet somehow it comes off as cool. And yeah, so like when I think about them being iconic, like you, you're like, there's something patently silly about the sense of saying, yeah, these grown men who dress like robots. And yeah, so you have to, you like, you have to acknowledge the kind of cheese factor, the déclassé factor, the uncool factor, and kind of wrap your head around the fact that somehow through this precise alchemy, they were able to nonetheless come off as cool. <laughs> Even, yeah, I mean, they once did a, a surprise appearance at a Phoenix concert I was at. Maybe you were there too. And it's like- I was, I was. And there's something about, you know- <laughs> doing a surprise appearance at someone else's concert and you're still dressed like the robots there's something so i mean of course they would be but there's something so funny about that is that the last time was there like a grammy's performance after that was that the, the last time that they performed or there like was a, there was a grammy yeah there was a, okay. i don't know the i believe there was a grammy's performance and it was after yeah because that was 2000 that was uh 2011 I think. Yeah. And that's yeah. why it was, I, I actually did a Rolling Stone story about Phoenix for that show. Where, I mean, it was like the peg was Madison Square Garden. But correct me if I'm wrong, like, didn't Daft Punk get as big, uh, like, scream, if not bigger than, like, Phoenix playing 1901? People, well, it was, you know, it was, a, it was post Coachella Pyramid and post, yes. But, I mean, it, people went absolutely apeshit. Yes. It was like, but it was also, there was a real also self-congratulatory apeshitness to it because everyone was like, it was like, I'm going to be able to tell everyone tomorrow. Uh, in fact, it's one of the, my earliest tweets is 
Daft Punk just showed up, you know, because I was just like, I was like, this is what this Twitter thing is for. Like, I'm like to, yes. to, to get clout before we even called it that, you know, to, to, <laughs> to flex before, you know, yeah, that was, yeah. So it was a combination of genuine excitement and New York douchiness that we all kind of felt uh, together in that moment. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. But it's absolutely true that, like, I, I think that if there's a turning point, um, you know, you know, you mentioned Coachella and, you know, we've talked about, you know, essentially, I, I don't think they were in the pyramid at Madison Square Garden. I think that they were just kind of, were they, did they bring the pyramid in Madison Square Garden? Oh, no, no, so. no, 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 I just meant that, yeah, yeah. That, that, that it was, it was after, no, no, definitely not. No, 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 just, no, I, yeah. no I, I, yeah. I wasn't saying you were, I was just trying to remember, yeah. like, in my foggy yeah. memory, whether they actually had the pyramid, like, no, somehow in Madison no, Square Garden. No, I think what was actually funny is they really just showed up, like, other you know just to play keyboards so it was almost right. funnier because they were really just up there being musicians but they were you know it it had less of the you know the nothing production wise happened they're just it was just like their friends the robots came out to jam with them and i think that's why it was funny because isn't it, it kind of like it's like the muppets like the muppets have a rule that if you ever photograph the muppets or like uh, if the muppets ever appear i just remember this from some magazine piece that i was like privy to like the behind the scenes stuff and it incorporated some kind of some incorporation of the muppets maybe it was like a jason siegel thing when he wrote on muppets reboot um but anyway the point is that like when you kind of officially work with the muppets you can't call them puppets they are actually actual like creatures like you never everyone knows that they're puppets and yet like you can't show a hand going up their back you can't show them being controlled they are the kermit is a frog uh and so there's like i think a similar set of rules guides the the daft punk universe like when they show up at their friend's gig they're the robots but yeah like i mean i'm sure you're going to want to talk about it but like that hinge moment absolutely uh in their career where they kind of like leave behind the stature that they were at in the 90s and go just like super turbo is Coachella, which like you just reminded me of it when you talk about like, you know, you pulled out your phone when your first tweets is like, I was here. I think that Coachella 06 performance, I think a lot of people say they were there who weren't there because of that gig has become super legendary. And in part, one of the things that you'll hear is like, I'm sure you've heard this from like EDM, younger EDM artists that you've talked to. I certainly have, um, whether it's like Skrillex or maybe the Chainsmokers. I'm trying to remember like who, you know, uh, I've never talked to Avicii, but I think he's given a quote to this effect. Like all those guys were like, I was at that show or I heard about it and something clicked in my head. And I said, I want like those guys are God tier and I want to be that. So like, A, there was kind of that mainstream influence that they had. I think also like economically, that's, 2006 they go on their live tour in 2007 and at that point like cd sales have you know they haven't fallen all the way off the cliff but they're dropping off so much money is being generated by touring and i think that there was a to be like slightly more crass i think like a lot of people were like oh damn like uh these guys just crushed what was at that point like the biggest quote-unquote rock festival in the world they're not rock artists they're two guys they press buttons how do they pull this off um i think that like there's a certain economic logic as well to people just saying like oh wow like if you can get a crowd of however many thousands of people that revved up um this is something worth exploring you know the thing is much like rage against the machine who were awesome much how they inspired a lot of really terrible music 
Daft Punk Legacy has this weird mixed quality to it because through the the very bigness they achieved uh, after their amazing Coachella performance, which we'll talk about a little bit more, and the tour that followed, they inspired a lot of uh, what became EDM, and and uh, which had some great music and some really sucky music and a lot of like broy excess and just tastelessness. And for something for for a duo who was so relentlessly tasteful musically, for all the cheesiness you alluded to, there is a, a kind of irony to that, and it, it did lead to their final album being a, a total left-field turn because they were reacting to EDM. But it, it, is, it is weird to, to look at that part of their legacy, I guess. Yeah, totally. And, and we can talk about that, and we should. The other thing that popped into my mind is kind of the counterexample is uh, kind of on the... You know, uh, you know, on the other hand, you had LCD Sound System putting out, you know, this song Daft Punk is playing at my house. I don't remember what year that came out. Uh, maybe 2006? Maybe, oh, no, 2005, I think. Um, so a year before the Coachella blowout performance. You've got Justice uh, versus Simeon putting out We Are Your Friends, I think that same year. <laughs> And that whole kind of Ed Banger kind of Paris scene, obviously cool kids um, who were deeply indebted to Daft Punk. So that's a cool legacy. And also there's a parallel with Rage Against the Machine, right? Because I remember around that time, if you would go to like Ed Banger parties or like parties where Ed Banger type music was played, there was a Sebastian cover of Killing in the Name of. They would like close out these parties with. Well, you're bringing it all together here. That's great. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, and then of course, very prominently, Kanye uh, sampling "Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger" for "Stronger." Which comes out. What year is that? Is that 2006, 2007? Um, 2007. So, th- so there are cool people who kind of carry the torch. But yeah, absolutely, there are you know all these artists, and we don't need to name names and hurt anyone's feelings. But certainly, some as you said, some kind of sucky tunes come out uh, inspired by, or not even inspired by, but just kind of like by people who claim Daft Punk as like god tier forebears. And yeah, when they when Daft Punk kind of come off the road. In 2008, they start working on Random Access Memories, and you know it takes a few years for them to put it out. But they are absolutely, you know, asking themselves the question: How can we distinguish our, ourselves from now that EDM has become something that it wasn't the last time we put music out? Uh, how do we kind of make ourselves distinct, and how do we kind of zig away from all this zagging? And you know, we can get into it now or a bit later on. But I mean, the the, the basic answer is live instruments. Right, and when you talk to them, they had a lot of thoughts about EDM. They, they what were the comparisons they made? There was like one line, I think it was Tomas or Tomas in both cases, but he um, compared it to an energy drink. But then the like the, the, the funnier quote is, uh, maybe it's the difference between love and sex or eroticism and pornography. Uh, you, you wanted to do the French accent and then you just couldn't bring yourself to, to, to do it. I did a French cadence. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, let's jump back to the, the beginning for a minute. You know, the first two albums... And it's, it's the second one, Discovery, that is just, you know, it's just an absolute monster classic. Homework's pretty great, too, but Discovery is in, absolutely incredible, like one of the greatest albums ever made. I have no idea where it ranked in our list, but it should be super high. But maybe just talk about those, those first couple albums and, and what they were drawing on and what made them great. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to talk about, uh, yeah, as you said, homework is very cool. Um, and unsurprisingly, the track that I've revisited the most often from that one in video form is Around the World, which is like the breakout single from that one. which has this just wonderful um, Michelle Gondry video where there are kind of dancers sort of dressed up as like robots or like sci-fi type characters moving around a kind of like carousel-ish sort of stage. But each dancer represents a different element of the track. So like these dancers are kind of like moving in time with the bass line and these dancers are moving in time with the vocal, etc. It's a very cool album, but definitely Discovery is the one that like I was actually just listening to it earlier today. And I was like, holy shit, this holds up so well. This sounds so good right now. I literally, I was, I was also listening to it today, and it was like I had to do other stuff. I literally didn't want to stop listening to it, which is so rare for any. Like I was annoyed that I had to take a phone call, like because I was just like bathing in its textures. It, it, it really, it, it probably sounds better now. It aged like perfectly. I think it does sound better. I like it more for some reason, like here in 2021 than the last time I listened to it, and I liked it a lot then too. Yeah, like the the, the sampling work is like so intricate on it, and there's all, but there's also like there's a sense of this kind of like pop songcraft sensibility on some of the tracks sort of sharing space with um you know a more kind of droning or repetitive like dance music structure uh in a way that yeah just sounds you know it just makes total sense now but it wasn't intuitive at the moment you know that they did that and you know i i think that there, there's also this kind of semi um I don't know. I, I was like, I think that the line that I put in my story was like, they kind of strafe these filters over, you know, um, samples from the past in ways that almost make them sound like memories that you're like, like a, a track that you're hearing through a wall. And there's something kind of like poetic about just sort of these sounds that kind of you're almost placing because either it's a song that sounds like a song that you love, but you never actually heard it, or it's a song that you do know, but they've just kind of taken it out of context. But certainly the sense of like something poignant about just like hearing, I mean, it's funny, random Access Memories has memories in the title, but something with Discovery does have this sense of like, I don't know, this poetic sense of like, oh, like a half remembered melody kind of like emerging through these like filter effects. Um, it's Yeah, it's such a beautiful album. That's the one where they really kind of like establish themselves, certainly to critics, as more than just like, you know, a flash in the pan or a fad. And, then, you know, like a, a song like Digital Love... Part of what you were saying that the way it makes us feel is, is actually that combination of half memories and something new in some cases literally reflects what they were doing because they were combining they would take things that were samples and then play stuff live and fake samples and then play you know and then almost become i mean digital love is almost like it ends up sounding like they basically recorded a rock song with you know driven by some samples but live and then just dj'd it up you know and, and it's actually like it still sounds kind of futuristic what they did there it's you know, like it's, yeah it's super sophisticated right so it's just so they, they made this iconic album <laughs> i just feel like saying iconic today and then the interesting glitch in the story is the next album was considered something of a disappointment human after all and and i, I like it actually but it was maybe never meant to be as kind of uh graven in stone as the rest of the work and maybe was i mean it was it was done very quickly i'm not sure what your sense is of of how it was supposed to sit differently maybe in the discography 
Well, I, I think that um, when I talked about it with them, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't remember if this is in the piece or not, but I have like a foggy memory of them, you know, kind of characterizing that album as, from their perspective, a kind of response to the making of Discovery, which is, you know, for all the reasons that you'd imagine based on what a feat that was to put together a very kind of like sustained and involved undertaking with a lot of revision and, you know, a lot of digging and waiting for the right sample to, oh, that one's not working. Hmm, this track's not right. You know, I don't, I don't know exactly how long it took them, took them to make it, but it took a while. And so they went on their like, kind of like white stripe shit, you know, for human after all, and wanted to like bang out and you know, they want to go Jack White style and just like, let's one take these tracks or come as close to that as possible and do a kind of like rock, um, rock kind of like model uh, of production as opposed to like you know i mean even if there are there are tons of samples on there but like the metaphor becomes like a rock band broadly speaking on that album so they wanted to just like bang it out really fast but yeah actually i need to re-listen to it because the first time i listened to it kind of like after the fact after it came out not like the day it came out and that's always a good way like listening to something a little at a bit of a remove to kind of like hear it without your own kind of like expectations built up from the last album kind of getting in the way of actually hearing it um and so i liked it off the bat i thought it was really cool in a way that um like i did listen to yeezus like right when it came out but i wonder if there was the parallel between those albums just in the sense of like people are expecting one thing and then like human after all is kind of like there's something a little abrasive to some of the samples on it and i'm just again with that kind of like noisy rock kind of like thing that they're drawing from i wonder if there's a bit of a yeezus parallel where people are like hold up this is not what a Kanye album should sound like um and some people were there maybe more people were defending yeezus in real time than people who were defending human after all but there might be a defense to be made i've got to throw that on again i think there um, is i, I yeah. and i you know and I, actually i think that's a great comparison i also wonder how much of direct even though it was the different album that he sampled but I, I do I do wonder whether there's a direct influence there actually but then what happened was basically so yes uh, James Murphy shouts them out in uh, Daft Punk is Playing My House which is like also one of the greatest songs of all time and for anyone who thought that they were uh, I don't know I think so and, and if, if uh, for anyone who thought they were kind of on their way out which actually was actually kind of a thought because they, they had made it what people thought were a disappointing album. Here's kind of, they're at the linchpin of, of this incredibly hip song, uh, which I think reminded people of how important they were. And then comes Coachella, which you talk, they, they do a performance that I think, I think we're maybe still grappling with what that performance meant because I, I think it may have been the way they leveraged technology into uh, a showmanship that had very little to do with kind of traditional showmanship. There, there wasn't nobody dancing, but it was almost like the visual equivalent of electronic music, a pure electronic music. It was just the showmanship was in the was in the thing in the electronics, and I think it helped. I mean, we know that it, it affected, you know, for the Watch the Throne tour, that it was a huge influence. And I think probably on all probably large scale concerts going forward, it was a big influence. So they, they gave this, you know, look it up on YouTube if you don't see it. I mean, they, they gave this insane performance at Coachella, changed everything. They then gave a tour with this, the dazzling LED pyramid that was incredible. Then did Tron. <laughs> they, they did, uh, which they spent like almost two years of their lives doing the soundtrack for this Tron movie. 
Do you have any thoughts on that music? I, n- I never really spent that much time with it. No, we, we, you and I are both going to punt on Tron. <laughs> we'll, we'll try to. Anyway, they, they, for some reason, really, they put a lot of, it was by no means, I was reading about this, and it's, it, this is by no means just like a money gig. They put like their heart and soul and apparently learned a lot about orchestration and live instruments. And what they've said, maybe to you, maybe to other people, is that project led to the confidence that would lead to random access memories. They realized that they could, they had actually apparently long had in their minds, like, wouldn't it be cool to kind of make dance music from live instruments in this modern era, but they didn't feel the confidence to do it. But after doing a whole orchestral score, I guess they were feeling some swagger. Mm -hmm. You got to do this cover story. It's still, I think, one of my favorite, maybe my favorite album launch of all time was what they did with the whole way they promoed that was so classic and amazing they they had a billboard on Sunset Boulevard they had they had an ad i think on Saturday Live or something with get lucky with just a bit of it and and it's just yeah, was like maybe 15 seconds of it incredible launch and so you what you got to do was you uh you got to actually meet these people as humans and hang out with them and do really i think the first real feature about them where they spoke as people which is was a hell of a opportunity and it, it is a great classic Rolling Stone cover story, honestly. I'd recommend anyone listening who hasn't read it to go back and read it. Um, I don't like all my stories, but I agree. People should read that one. That, that, was, <laughs> that was one turned one. out great. It's a great one. Yeah, that was a good but one. Maybe just talk about, you know, that this. It, it's sort of like, on the one hand, it's sort of like a, you know, you, it's a long, slow pitch down the middle to get this opportunity to unveil, to take literally take the mask off of these guys. On the other hand, it's sort of, you really wanted to get it right. So maybe just talk about what that experience was like. You open the piece with your, you arrive at the spot and they like kind of like let you in and the gates open and there you are. But maybe just talk a little bit about what that was like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, you've done a pretty good job setting the scene. Uh, like, what was cool was, I think, I'm pretty sure, um, if my timing's right, that, like, I was watching that, like, 15-second SNL spot, um, and then I think maybe the next week it was a 30-second spot, and so they're kind of, like, literally just, like, you know, like, doling out just, like, a few more seconds of the lead single. Um, but I was seeing those ads more or less, like, I knew I was going to be writing this story, but I don't think I'd met them yet, so... I'm just kind of like those things are hitting me um, exactly the way that they intend, which is just kind of like a fan who cares about this group, who's stoked um, after, you know, all the hype that, that, that has built up around them for what they're going to sound like. And so, yeah, there is this moment. It's the lead of the piece. Um, which, you know, on the one hand is incredibly banal. It's a gate opening onto a French courtyard and there's two like kind of handsome-ish looking 38 and 39 year old, like, you know, sort of scruffy guys wearing like jeans um, standing behind it. And yet it's like, feels like a curtain raising and you're saying, holy shit, I'm, I'm being led into an inner sanctum here. And that, uh, you know, uh, obviously that's part of their kind of, you know, uh, uh, theatricality and their marketing. Um, But they are also, they also are just kind of like privacy minded people. And I think that that's also an essential part of them putting on these masks apart from concerns of like, okay, how do we make ourselves look interesting on stage or, you know, how do we kind of make this project uh, more visually interesting generally they also just like had an interest in privacy so it did really feel like something you know like a curtain being raised to have this like gate swing open and these guys there um and then i think that they were a little um 
cagey at first kind of uh, table stakes for, you know, interviewing people who are that interested in privacy and secrecy, but also like they had been working on this album, Random Access Memories, since 2008. They came off the Alive tour and with no particular rush, they just started, you know, working on stuff that was going to, in some shape, way or form, make its way onto this album. Uh, what's the math on that? 13 minus eight. Um, we are talking about five years. Jesus. This is why I write uh, stories about musicians and uh, don't do you know quantum physics. So uh, uh, they were, I think, just like a little bit nervous about having someone from the outside world just hear this thing that, you know, they'd obviously bounced it off you know, people like Nile Rodgers, who plays on the album, and Pharrell, who performs on the album. And I think they played some for Kanye. But, you know, I represented sort of like the outside world kind of writ large showing up. So it's like a little cagey, but also like really stoked. Like, holy shit, we've been working on this thing for so long. We're really excited to share it with you. And so we like go into their studio, which is like, again, as a fan and as someone who would like been on the other side of the veil, you're like looking around, kind of like trying to just ring total significant all significance possible from everything you see and there's like a litany in the piece but like i remember um rod stewart album yeah my mind catching on uh, a rod stewart album and which one specifically uh blondes have more fun blu-ray copies of tron l'heritage which is my uh like weirdly new orleans uh rendition of a french accent um saying the french title of tron legacy which you were just talking about and a walker's rhyming dictionary and i really like that because if you listen to the tracks that uh that banjolte sings on through the vocoder they sound oftentimes the lyrics like sound like the lyrics of someone who uh, has a rhyming dictionary uh, in the <laughs> studio uh so yeah like looking at that but then of course like the centerpiece um, besides the Walker's Rhyming Dictionary, was this massive uh, modular synthesizer that like, took up an entire wall that had it custom built. And that was the kind of like amid all the live instruments, you know, and all the, you know, off the wall and thriller session musicians that they hired and guys like Nile Rogers and all the like classic Hollywood, you know, recording studios that they'd taped in. This synthesizer was kind of the glue holding it all together like they were saying there's a little bit of this synth on every track and they kind of like fired it up and you just you you heard i don't know the science of these things Saul, but like you heard like this ancient kind of machinery kind of like you know groaning to life i mean this you know while it wasn't you know it's not a guitar uh it's still not just like a laptop firing up pro tools right there's all these wires that you know like an old telephone operator you pull one out you plug it into another hole and you get a totally different sound and they kind of gave me a little demo of it and then they left the room and they played the new album for me. Uh, and so, cause I don't think they wanted to watch my face and I didn't want to have my face watched while I was hearing it, but you know, they kind of played it. I listened to the album and I was, I'm curious what you thought the first time you heard it. I, I won't go on too long about this, like, but I often get a certain kind of like queasiness or nausea in my stomach when I am kind of confronted with art that is so, and, and I mean this, like, it's the most positive kind of nausea because it's sort of, it's art, it's an aesthetic experience that I kind of need to like, I don't have the proper context to kind of wrap my head around it, make sense of it. And it's kind of like, whoa, this is not what a new Daft Punk album should sound like. It's not what I wanted it to sound like. It's tugging me in another direction. It's moving in a way behaving in a way that I was not prepared for. And I was like, holy shit, is this horrible? You know, like that was kind of the initial thing. Like I have to write a cover story about, you know, this album that maybe is bad. And, and I'm talking about like, maybe like we're like three seconds in, right? This is just kind of like my own mind racing. But like, you know, then when we get to like that song Touch, which has this like very, I don't know, just like unexpected vocal from Paul Walker. Wait, not Paul Walker, <laughs> Paul Williams. Touch, 
I remember touch. Pictures came with touch. Paul Williams just kind of like, you know, this very, I won't do it. People can just listen to it or, you know, they know it. It's just like, whoa, this is not like a cool electro dance track. You know, there's there are proggy moves. There are these big orchestral moves. Um, and I just kind of got queasy. But, you know, by the end of it, I was like, this is a queasiness that I've gotten before in, in the presence of kind of like great art that is just forcing me out of a set of preconceptions that I had. And that's exactly what they wanted. Because, you know, as we've talked about, um, there were a lot of people making lesser music claiming them as influences uh, and they had spent all this time trying to figure out how can we um, you know set ourselves apart from these guys and kind of create this new genealogy or or make very clear the genealogy that we see ourselves in and we're going to interview Giorgio Moroder on our album to like make very clear like you know and and, and like I said off the wall and thriller session players and Nile Rodgers like this is the lineage that we care about and then it was like as baller a Rolling Stone cover story experience as you could hope for we went out uh, to a bar. Then we went out to dinner at a hotel in Pigalle that their friends owned. Um, we took like the metro uh, between these places, between the studio to the bar to the restaurant, which is just like a fun thing when you think about like the level of fame they're at. And that's the other benefit of these masks. No one knows what they look like, broadly speaking. So they're just taking the subway, like a rush hour Paris metro trip. And we hung out, hit it off. Uh, Bajolte, it's interesting. Like th their dynamic, um, which I didn't really get to see in terms of their working dynamic, but people would tell me, tell me that kind of Bajolte sort of takes the lead. And Omem Christo is kind of like the dude who will listen to what Bajolte has done, broadly speaking, and say, just change this chord over here. And suddenly the song sounds like a hit, like it was just missing that part. But similarly in conversation, Omem Christo is a little more soft-spoken. Bajolte kind of like takes the lead and he really like warmed up. He really like revs up and suddenly he's like leaning over and like smacking me on the knee to like accentuate a joke he makes. You know, and there's like nice guys who in essence kind of like have a certain caginess that they got over just from spending time together. And then when I saw them, you know, the next time after Paris, it was at uh, a Palm Springs mansion where like JFK was rumored to have had an affair or his singular affair with Marilyn Monroe, like in one of the bedrooms, they'd rented this house coincident with Coachella because I guess like going off that drumbeat of little bit, uh, little ads that we talked about was uh, SNL. They were going to play like a full minute 30 ad for the album with that much of the Get Lucky video just on Jumbotrons. And, you know, there are all these rumors like, oh, are Daft Punk are here. Are they going to play? Are they going to play? And all it was was they were just playing pre-recorded videos on all like seven screens or whatever, all, you know, all seven stages. And again, as at that Phoenix concert, people reacted to that video as though Daft Punk had walked out and played a set. So I got to like, yeah, hang out with them at this like mansion and like weirdly demystifying like see Daft Punk with their shirts off just in swimsuits. Um, they looked fine. I'm just saying it wasn't like it wasn't unpleasant, but just like as far from the robots as possible. And like Pharrell is hanging out the mansion and we all like ride over in sprinter vans to Coachella, to, you know, to the grounds together. Uh, so it was a super fun story. Those guys are cool. They're really interesting. But like when you talk about them not taking like a money job on Tron, I mean, that was absolutely like the tenor of all my time with them was how deeply they give a fuck about the music they make and like every like you know micron to mix metaphors of the experience like being considered and with like random access memories they say they spent at least a million dollars like that Giorgio Moroder track is recorded on three different vintage microphones from different decades because that is how deeply Bash Alte A cares about and B claims to be able to detect differences in sound um, but yeah that level of caring like they don't take a money job like they cared so much and you know there were there were like worries on their part at Coachella like is 
the sun going to be uh, is the sun going to set because we want it to be pitch black so that these videos that we're playing have like you know the ultimate effect i just rewatched the steve jobs movie recently the danny boyle one and there's this thing where he wants the exit sign turned off for uh presentation because he doesn't want that little faint red glow and there's a similar sense of that level of care to like every aspect of you know of a performance of you know of a work of art where they were just like hold up what time is sunset and you know someone in the camp is googling it and they're like okay cool like <laughs> it's going to be dark enough what's wild is they had a, a great quote to you which is basically like when you asked about touring i think it was to you they, they said uh, a tour is not an adjunct to an album for us a tour is a tour and we'll tour when we're ready you know that that's a separate issue but the tour never happened that was eight years ago and now they broke up and they, 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 not only did they, they, all they ever did was do a couple of okay songs with the weekend uh yeah. which the so I think now we have one of the great sort of music history mysteries. Like, what the hell happened? Like, obviously something perhaps went went wrong in the partnership or something, because uh, it was pretty clear that the plan was to do another tour, and yet it just kind of like literally like the we watched the robot blow up, even though it was, they'd already filmed that for it's already in a movie. But that's it. So weird. What the hell? Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting because um, actually, well, I mean, certainly they were supposed to do a, a tour in the sense of no doubt business partners wanted them to. And like the amount of money like that they were primed to make once they toured that album was going to be bananas. And so there was this assumption on my part and a lot of people's part, even as I was hanging out with them, um, that necessarily just for obvious reasons, a tour was going to follow pretty soon after. But actually, I recall when I was with them saying like, all right, off the record, like when is the tour going to happen? And Banjolte saying like, not with like, um, this wasn't like stage, uh, sort of like stagecraft or like coyness. He was just like, we have no plans to. He was like, he seemed thoroughly uninterested in the notion. Like it, it didn't actually seem like something he'd thought about. And, and it's kind of the inverse of that quote that you said. They were thinking about the album right then. Got it. And just like they wanted people to sit with the album and buy the 180 gram vinyl if possible. And just like, you know, commune with that totem. And that was the impression. I don't remember the exact back and forth, but I remember being really surprised. But it didn't seem like he wasn't coy where he was like, no, we're not touring. And then suddenly, you know, they announced it like a few months later. He was really like, we're, we have like no interest in thinking about that right now. And so, you know, we could imagine or extrapolate from that, like however many years come on, if they take touring as seriously as they do, or they, I mean, think about this, if they didn't want to sound at all like people who were claiming them as influences, you could see after, as you've said, for all the reasons that tour was so influential and, you know, like there were groups that are like, uh, or DJs that were like, okay, I'm going to do a, a sphere. They did a pyramid. I'll do a sphere. And someone was like, well, I'll, I'll do a cube. You know, there are all these people trying to do their versions of it. I can see definitely kind of getting in their own heads to a degree and just being like, if we're going to tour, we've got to figure out how to do it in a way that kind of justifies itself. And maybe they just never figure that out. Yeah. And then maybe they never figured out the next musical step after, you know, we'll do it with live instruments. Who knows? Maybe we'll, yeah, who knows? Maybe we'll find out someday. It's, I kind of, I mean, in a way, even though... I think this is one of the coolest exits since David Bowie, who, you know, it's, there's a, where there's an actual tragedy of a human being dying, but he, as an artist, he went out very artfully, you know, and that's a whole other topic. But, but you know, this is pretty cool. I mean, honestly, like, like to even just to, to randomly, like, like sort of knock on the internet and be like, like, hey, we're back. And everyone got excited for about, you know, 20 seconds and be like, no, actually, we just wanted to say, like, fuck you, we're gone. Is there something so amazing about that? I'm in denial. I'm in denial. You don't um, believe maybe it. Maybe yeah. I'll work my way through it. Uh, yeah, it's just, I don't. I don't want to. I don't know if I. Maybe I do believe it, but I don't want to. 
Well, I'm glad that we had the robots for the time we had the robots. And, <laughs> and thank you for joining me, Jonah. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. And uh, plug your newsletter one more time. Uh, it's called blackbirdspyplane.com. It is a style and culture newsletter that I do uh, with my partner, Aaron. And um, there's a big kind of culture element to the extent that we've interviewed people like Andre 3000 and Lord and Phoebe Bridgers, always about just like rare and cherished things that they own that invariably wind up being an interesting uh, aperture into like who they are and what they care about. Um, you and I both obviously spend a lot of time interviewing people in the public eye and it's been pretty cool. The newsletter does other things, but as far as these interviews, if you ask someone like, tell me about a thing you really care about and you just focus the interview on that, it invariably opens up like so many doors. So blackbirdspyplane.com, people can check that out. It's uh, yeah, like style, but um, no small number of musicians show up. Very true. It's worth checking out. So This has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's Viome, channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. They are always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll definitely see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.